the DOD put out its first ever national defense uh, science and technology strategy. To discuss, we have on today Dr. Nina Collars, Collars, advisor to the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, Heidi Shu, as well as RNE's chief data officer, Cyrus Jabari. So what is this document? There's a couple things going on in the, well, there's a lot of things going on in a, in a Department of Defense strategic document. The building is large. There are a lot of equities both inside and outside the building. So what, what the, the team, the writing team is very proud of um, is first that we tried to make it as elegant as possible, very straightforward, very simple. Um, we didn't want to generate new jargon. We didn't want uh, for people to come away from it saying this is it took forever to read and I'm not sure what it says. Um, and so for that reason, oh, and then this is and this is a completely unclassified uh, document. And we intended there is the, there is only the unclassified version. There is no classified version of this document uh, for the reason that we wanted this to be a clear message, not just to the nation, to you know the defense industry, but also to our allies. Um, and it, it kind of speaks again again to the way the we're just really interested in making sure that we can step forward in 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 technological competition with our allies and potential new strategic partnerships. Let's take a step back. What's the like how a bill becomes a law story for um, a, a DOD um, secretary signed strategy document? Uh, so this is it's an, an the, so there are what twenty just under twenty seven thousand employees of inside the Pentagon. Uh, the Department of Defense is huge, one of the world's largest organizations, though not the largest one. Apparently, that's Walmart. Um, but, but so, and we have all sorts of different equities and there should be right in competition with each other, you know, the army, the air force, the Navy, then we have the equities of the unders, the undersecretaries, there's an undersecretary for policy. There's an undersecretary for research and engineering, which is my boss. We have all sorts of competitive spirits inside the Pentagon who have uh, strong arguments about why uh, they deserve uh, more or less or attention, more or less budget share, um, and and the initiatives they're trying to carry out. And so when you say we're going to have a science and technology strategy, and in particular because the Department of Defense has a lot of science and technology in it, it's a pretty political process. Uh, so so you so so how does one do that? So. <laughs> You sort of hope there's a, you hope there's like a manual when someone's like, we better build a strategy. And you think, OK, maybe we'll, you know, we, someone tell me how to, it's, there must be a protocol of some kind. We are the military. There must be a protocol. There's no protocol. It, um, it, I have to take two seconds, though, to say um, this, the document itself couldn't have been brought together without the help of this guy we call the pen. He's called the pen. Um, and in this case, the pen is this guy named Frank Smith, uh, who's at the U.S. Naval War College. Um, and that man took a beating uh, while trying to write these 14 pages um, because of all the equities and because of all the conversations. So how does it start? So um, first you start with a soft build. So you get a small team of intellectually humble people together, uh, people that you think can uh, look beyond the equities of their shop, their office, and think big picture. And so you start with that soft build and you say, okay, team, the, what do we think the problem is? 
And what do we think we need to, to do to get after it? Now, the good news is this document is derived directly from the national defense strategy. So a lot of that heavy lift on what is the objective is already taken care of um, in, uh, in the section of the national defense strategy called Enduring Advantages, which is largely about science and technology. So that we look at that, we read the tea leaves, we call the people who wrote that section, and then we then sort of proceed to with a whiteboard, right, Cyrus? So we yeah. sat down with a whiteboard and we said, okay, what does this mean in real terms? Uh, and then you're off to the races and you create a document. I just wanted to give Cyrus a chance to... So he's our chief data officer, and so this has got to be exhausting and terrifying for him to watch a bunch of just sort of people in a room say, what's the problem, right? And we're all experts in something, right? And we're, I work on innovation. We've got policy experts. We've got scientists. We've got engineers. We're all just kind of trying to get at it. And then, and then Cyrus's, Cyrus's job. Go ahead, Cyrus. What's your job? <laughs> um, I'm finding out it's more and more things as weeks go by. Um, well, um, as, as chief data officer, um, I'm supposed to help ensure that our slice of DOD, which is a pretty large one um, from a budgetary perspective um, and ecosystem perspective, is a more modern data-ready organization in line with the um, data decrees of um, our senior leadership, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, um, and in line with um, new office movements, such as the establishment of a department-wide chief digital and artificial intelligence officer. But that's just a lot of jargon. Um, what I'm really supposed to do is help um, our, uh, the research and engineering enterprise be, I think, more analytically rigorous through data um, and to be able to measure its own performance objectives and key results in a more effective way. I want to have like a like a philosophical conversation for a second about um, sort of top down versus bottom up innovation. Um, we're going to get into the, um, you know, 14 critical technologies and sort of how you're placing bets across them. But um, I uh, watched the Netflix movie All Quiet on the Western Front, and that sort of got me down this path of reading about uh, World War I technological innovation. And I stumbled yes. upon this like absolutely mind-blowing book called The Social History of the Machine Gun by John Ellis. And uh, it, it sort of told this um, kind of mind-blowing story that basically by the 1870s, the machine gun was like totally ready for action. And there were, but there were all of these sort of cultural institutional barriers, um, even when, you know, it like the machine gun got like five times better and five times more reliable, like within three years, even when, um, you know, the UK itself used it to win uh, uh, wars against like colonial uprisings, even when you had sort of like, like, uh, like leading edge militaries in the Russo-Japanese war in like 1907, like completely having to change their whole tactical um, uh, sort of approach. Um, by 1914 and even into 1915, after tens of thousands of people have died uh, using sort of like 19th century tactics and like running up in lines against machine guns, um, there were still people in these militaries who were like, 
no, this is like taking away our offensive spirit. It's not, it's not something that we need to do. And I want to read this, and I want to read this, uh, this, this quote from you from this book. So it, it, um, uh, it's talking, so, um, sort of Lloyd George, who was running the UK, um, was having to fight with his war office, um, in 1915, refusing to accept the war office estimates of future needs for um, for the machine gun. He said that, um, you know, Haig, who was running running the UK's military at the time, said that the machine gun was a much overrated weapon and two per battalion were more than sufficient. Kitchener thought that four might be useful um, and above four may be counted as luxury. And then Lloyd George told his assistants, take Kitchener's maximum, square it, multiply it by two, and when you are in sight of that, double it for good measure. So I guess I'm... I'm sort of curious, you know, as you're thinking about, um, you know, thinking in peacetime about like future technologies and how they may change the battles as sort of civilians, like what are the sort of dynamics you're trying to instill in this process to make sure that, um, you know, whatever is the machine gun of the 2020s is not being overlooked today? I, I, the, <laughs> wow. Um, so you, so one, you're you're singing my song um, as a as a person who thinks about what what innovation what the what is the conversation that innovation needs to like where what are its points what do we need to be talking about when we talk about innovation and um, like to your point the social component is a very real problem and uh, and and I've long been a proponent of making sure that we talk about. Um, the end user because they get a vote and we talk about the people who are going to have the conversation about how many to buy because they get a vote. Um, it, and so you can have, right, and it, to your point, right, you can have what appears to be, we call this technological determinism, what appears to be an obvious use case and what appears to be uh, a, a mandate to use and then uh, you get it out there and people are like, oh, I don't know. I mean, this drone things really work. Is this 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 seems a little silly? Um, and it's and it's but this is these these are the these are the social barriers and often the very real barriers. I don't like calling it culture. I like calling it the social barriers. Um, the way innovation is supposed to work is you have where we are way back in science and technology, early basic research. What is it? What is this quantum thing we're looking at? Is it even real? You get it moved forward, you turned it into a machine of some kind, of maybe at a clock, or who knows, a navigation system, and you start experimenting with it, you've got your prototype, and that's all very important, incredible. And then you've got this thing that hopefully you have more than one of, because if you only have one, I'm not sure it's going to be useful, just to speak to scale and our friends in acquisition and sustainment. And then you give it to a somewhere between the ages of 18 to 35 year old person and you say go forth and do war uh and if they don't know what it's for and they don't know how to use it or they haven't figured out how to how to play with it and operate with it and how does it fit into the bigger picture of how we're doing things if we don't have that you do not have innovation you have a widget that no one's ever going to use and so when you when we tell this story about innovation, we need to tell the story from front to back. Uh, and so much of the conversation over the last decade, appropriately, appropriately so, because industry has been waiting for the conversation, 
so much of it has been about buying the machines and making sure they find their way into the DOD. But there has to be a back end to that, and that conversation needs to, needs to go on. And one of the reasons you try and bring all these people into the room to have a conversation about a science and technology strategy is you hope that you're thinking about the full range. We can't just be talking to the engineers and the scientists when we have this conversation. You have to talk to your end user, and you have to think of the politics of the building. To my point to wit, why, does, why would a person ever create a science and technology strategy for the Department of Defense that was fully unclassified? Because we have to step out together. Everybody has to know what's happening all along the way. We can't afford to have a, a no-foreign or releasable only to 5 eye version of this strategy because we have to have the conversation at the same time. The, uh, one of my dear friends, Jack Watling, over at RUSI in the UK, says... It's good that the United States has all this innovation. Are you aware that the Brits are not yet ready to pick up and move as fast as you are? What does that mean in real terms? And so thinking about how does it work in, in joint operations, which is, this, which is what we, joint operations is what we say when we say putting the Army and the Air Force and the Marine Corps together and making sure that they all do their thing, and the Navy, and the Navy. Um, but combined which is what we say that's the word we use for working with our trusted allies. Joint and combines a big deal. And making sure that we have the conversation, making sure that we're stepping out at the same time, really friggin' hard, really hard, but uh, you can't avoid it. Um, you know, when I, was, when I was reading this document, like, like every, everything you see that you want to do, like, uh, like let's be more joint, like let's do better R&D. It's like, oh, man. That's like, these are the aspirational goals. Um, this, is the, this is sort of what we're aiming towards because it is not easy, because it is extremely painful. It's, it, you know, I have a, uh, uh, a colleague of mine said, said strategies either look like one of two things. They either look like uh, Christmas wish lists or New Year's resolutions, right? So these are all the things we wish we had or, geez, this is what I'm definitely going to get right next year. And so I, I, think, I think that this strategy is a mixture of both. And I think you're right. Some of it is, it's a high level document. It's meant to say, we've got to get this right. Which is to say, by the way, like many of the things that are mentioned in the document are already underway. We, we started building this document over a year ago when we knew the language had come down from Congress. So uh, it's not as if everyone was sort of waiting at the start line and it's like, all right, as soon as, as, soon as the strategy hits, we all start, right? We've, we've been moving out on all these basic tenets for, for over a year now in the prior administration as well. And so it's not as if we're at the starting block. We're in the middle of the jog, but you do have to remind people this is where we're headed. This is what we're doing. We need to remind you that we have to do it like this because all of the barriers are diffuse and small and they will they will slow us down. Yeah. So on that, I got another conceptual framework for you. So Michael Horror is one of your colleagues in the DOD. He wrote this book called Diffusion of Military Power, Causes and Consequences for International Politics. And basically he sets up this two by two of like rich country, poor country, like good institutional capacity to absorb military innovation and bad institutional capacity to absorb military innovation. And, and, you know, some innovations are sort of easier 
um, and like more money wins because everyone kind of understands what it's going towards. And if you just pour more money into it, um, then like the the sort of structure that's already built that fought the last war won't have that much of a challenge doing it for the new one. But then you have these other innovations where um, sometimes it almost helps to have less money uh, because or having lost the last war, because then it you sort of have less uh, sort of institutional, social, cultural baggage when you have to do the hard changes and and sort of, you know, cutting off your left arm equivalent of, you know, throwing away whatever weapon system or uh, what have you in order to kind of like push through to the new future paradigm that's going to be dominant and the, you know, whatever technological paradigm you're going to be fighting in next. So, um I don't know, reflections on that when you're thinking about these new technologies. I don't know, maybe go down the critical lists of like which ones are the easy ones versus the harder ones um, to sort of get institutions to, to understand and adapt to. We love all of our children equally. Don't ask me to pick between them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so a couple things. So Mike Horowitz is a is a tremendous person and we as academics who get brought into the maelstrom of the pentagon uh there are certain and i haven't asked him this question so i'm not i so I, i'm sorry mike um we write things as academics and then when you work uh in the pentagon or do time in the pentagon as you will um you look back at the stuff you wrote and you say to yourself i would never write I'll never write that again <laughs> knowing what i know now but you you picked up on it er, uh, earlier uh, with your with your uh, quote from the machine gun, and we're talking about it now, which is so technological change in peacetime is remarkably difficult because the incentive is the status quo. That is how it works, and the more powerful you are, the more convinced you are that you're right. So that is hard, uh, and it's it's um, it's easier to change when you have. Uh, well, in the case of, of World War Two uh, and the Luftwaffe uh, and uh, much of World War One, when you've destroyed an infrastructure so that you have to start from zero, those things uh, make it easier to, uh, to adopt new technologies. Um, but peacetime's hard. Wartime is, is, is the time in which these things, you see all these amazing changes because you've got no other choice. But the peacetime stuff is um, is where we are, and I do not want to win, you know, neither do I want it to lose in a conflict uh, to do technological innovation, but we are dealing with the hard case. This is the hard case. We're a mature, very strong, highly successful military with uh, with money. Uh, so the odds are very, uh, very much against us. But in addition to it, the thing that we're trying to do with types of technology and um, with our chief data officer, in my mind, is the linchpin for how we move forward with a lot of these technologies. And so I'm just going to I'm going to pivot to my colleague here and talk a little bit about what's the data challenge and then how does that, you know, like, w what does that mean for our capacity to change? Just to set the context, um Going back to a couple of your points, um, I think, you know, working on um, developing technology of the future, especially in peacetime um, or, or in the midterm or near term, is all about tracking inputs, tracking activities that you are pursuing, um, and then being able to effectively communicate and track outputs. 
Um, and so you've, you know, Dr. Collar said that this strategy was, has been in development for a year. We've worked on a number of those tracking and PR campaign mechanisms um, and new flexible organizational innovations within DOD um, while we were drafting this strategy. Um, Dr. Collars mentioned joint operations. Um, DOD or R&E doesn't just do science and technology investment and research, but we also do prototyping and experimentation. Um, and so one key um, business innovation, I think, um, that we did um, back a year ago was the creation of this rapid defense experimentation reserve, which was all about getting the services and combatant commands to get in the same room with the S&T and prototyping folks and with industry um, to understand um, future threats and the technologies that we need to develop jointly and co-fund and put together um, and transition to the warfighter after experimentation once those technologies have proven effective um, in experiments and exercises. Additionally, you know, the Office of Strategic Capital, you've probably heard of um, another innovation that um, was unveiled closer to the NDSTS's release. Um, it's, it's not so much an innovation for the government in terms of what they're trying to do, understanding private capital markets and engaging with them um, so that we can uh, more effectively cross valleys of death. Um, but the authorities that they're seeking and the work they're trying to do, the analytic methods I think they're trying to bring into the department are new to the department. Um, and so uh, from what, what we are trying to do, what my team is trying to do, is track the investments, number one, within DOD, um, track uh, what's going on outside of DOD, whether that's in USG or the broader world, um, in the private capital space as well. Um, and then also track our outputs, because once we make an investment, we want to know where it goes. And um, being responsive to the public, whether that's Congress or industry, in answering questions like, what are the technology areas that you prioritize? Or how successful are your investments in making it across the valley of death is a question that keeps coming to our leadership. And we want to be responsible with taxpayer dollars. Um, so there's more to come on that. But um, uh, that that analytical process is something that I think is also foundational to the NDSTS. So very excited to have a document to bring the department and wider community together um, to make us more modern and data ready. All right. So let's um, uh, tracking, tracking, the DOD tracking investments, like, uh, why should I not be concerned that that's not something that's already happening? <laughs> it is. It is happening. But um, getting greater fidelity is something that every organization wants on its investments. So um, really, the, the reason why I have a job, why my team has a job, um, is because of a uh, congressional requirement back in 2017 where DOD failed um, its audit and Congress wanted us to become more data centric in how we analyze our finances. And um, I, I did some China talk snooping and saw um, that an earlier podcast, one of your guests was talking about um, industries that would probably 
most prepared to adopt um, artificial intelligence. And the financial sector, I think, got, you know, gold stars for that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, financial sector and organiza big organizations that want to understand their finances, data and artificial intelligence, machine learning are prime um, tools for and, and assets for conducting that sort of analysis. So DOD, um, specifically its uh, comptroller, um, had organized a new program office and platform back in 2018 to create a universe of transactions, unifying all of its financial data sets. Um, and that's called Advancing Analytics or Advana, which you've probably heard in the years since, and especially this year, has made significant strides in bringing in other types of data than just financial data sets and bringing in new tools to analyze that and make them more impactful from an operational and decision advantage perspective for senior leadership. Um, so um, we're, we want to understand our investments, but not just, you know, dollar amount where things go. It's more of what do these investments mean? If we're investing in critical technology areas um, or in widgets, can we track those widgets as they go through and even be able to ensure technology protection and other sorts of things that we care about, um, especially um, given all the uh, data gaps that appear in the news. Uh, yeah, I just I remember like reading the 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 um, uh, DOD hasn't had an audit in like like 20 decades or like, you know, whenever I see like DOD can't find the money, I'm like, oh, man, I guess we'll just have to wait for like the, the, the chat GPT to solve that because <laughs> um, it's been a long time of those articles. Um, anyway, sorry, Nina, what were you going to say? No, no, it's great. So like that. So I mean, I think audit questions aside and transparency and good handling of, of taxpayer dollars is important. But what I find like fascinating about the potential for what began in the comptroller's office, um, right, which is just general accounting, um, is stuff that we have seen happen for the business world for a very long time. So there's a couple of scholars down at Georgia Tech um, who have done these, um, how, does a, how, does a, how does a company optimize its logistics supply, its operations, how does it do that? Um, and how does it do, how does it find new operating models, not just financially, but how does it find new operating models to expand its market? So we're, the case studies, um, if you have time, and I know you, I know you like reading, um, the Waffle House model uh, is phenomenal um, and has gone, we, uh, the Waffle House model has gone on to inform um, how we do emergency response. Um, so so they, because there's all these different models about how to operate and how to sustain and how to, how to, where to put your people, especially in a global environment. So when you start, when you're trying to do studies like that, and I was talking to the scholars and I was like, hey, you know, how do you figure out how they figured it out and what are they doing to, to figure out how to optimize and just be more influential? And she said, oh, you start with the accountants. You always look at where the expenditures go uh, and how much they're spending. And, and she said, you would think that's just about money. But it actually, when you start there, you learn everything about how the organization operates, and then you can start having a conversation about other ways to, other ways to operate. And so to bring that back, when I heard this going on, when I talked to, to Cyrus, I was watching Cyrus do some early um, app development uh, 
for the entirety of the DOD. And I said, oh, are, you know, are we talking about Waffle House? Are we talking about Amazon? Are we talking about the Walmart model? Um, and he's saying, yeah. So that's, but he's, he's way down in the money um, because you can bust out new models on how to operate that way. And it's just a really cool insight. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's why. It's why that Advana, that, that program that started in Comptroller, got moved to the CDAO, which stands for Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer which is a new four-star um, direct report to the Deputy Secretary of Defense um, and so, has some so, cool industry. Yeah. yeah. So, so Cyrus, let's stay on this um, uh, sort of analyzing technology, uh, sort of more rigorous ways to analyze technology. I want to read from the, um, uh, the, uh, the strategy document from, for a second. Making the right technology investments will require the DOD to harness the analytic power of modeling simulation to inform our investments, excuse me, to inform our assessments of emerging technologies that have greater operational value. Developing highly accurate campaign level systems of systems models and simulations will help us identify capabilities and determine the mission contributions of specific technologies. Integrating physics-based models and campaign level systems of system models will improve the accuracy of our assessments. These robust models and simulations will be coupled with comprehensive technology watch and horizon scanning efforts to inform future critical technology investments. So, um, so, so Cyrus, what does that um, what does that mean on a on a day to day level when you're sort of going through your fourteen uh, technology areas? I think each of those phrases is an independent data effort um, that all all need to be considered um, through some standardized way. Um, so, TechWatch, horizon scanning physics-based modeling and simulation, um, those are all, those all reside within many different offices um, with their own distinct processes, their own distinct analytic systems. Um, and surprisingly, um, they are all coming together to discuss one thing, data standardization um, and frameworks and enterprise platforms and solutions. So. TechWatch horizon scanning exists in many different places just in DOD. There are centralized forums for it within DOD, outside DOD with our allies and partners. Um, but um, the inputs that I care about are, you know, what are the outputs of TechWatch horizon scanning? What are they, um, what are they producing? What are the commercially available or publicly available data sets um, that they're tapping into? And how can we use that in a more structured, centralized way for leadership um, or for a central office, if that ever exists. Um, but uh, that's not, that's above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> uh, same thing with physics-based modeling and simulation. Um, it's not just an OSD thing, or it's not just an r &E or OSD thing. It's also a service thing, and it's an allies thing. Um, and so making sure we're speaking about the same metadata tagging um, and the same um, analytic outputs um, is, is, I think, the first step um, in, in getting us together. Um, kind of like what, again, one of your previous podcast um, uh, speakers uh, alluded to. Um, some people are talking about yellow notepads um, that they're using to log information. Others, Excel sheets. Others, you know, platforms like Salesforce. Um, it's, it's just getting a baseline of where we're at from a maturity perspective. So Nina, can we just 
stay for a second on these different um, uh, sort of approaches to thinking about uh, uh, technologies and innovation? Um, how do they actually work in practice? Yeah. So well, uh, let's start with something that um, the so the phrasing physics physics based models. Um, and I think for for my engineers out there, they sort of cringing at the need to put the word physics at the front of it because when you're talking about engineering. Um, it's sort of implied that the physics are in there, uh, but but it's not to denigrate other models. But physics-based modeling, if you can think of it like what we used to call weaponeering, uh, which is uh, let's just talk about a bullet. So so I've got a bullet. It's made of I don't care copper. Who cares? Um, and I'm going to shoot it into several different things. Uh, I will keep the amount of uh, force that I said the velocity I sent it out on constant. Um, but uh, you've got weather. So is it foggy? Is it dense? Is it raining? Is it hot? Um, that will affect the performance of that bullet. Uh, so understanding how the natural world and how the construct of the machine itself or the, or the bullet, right, the technology itself is affected helps us understand, okay, well, so if I'm standing between um, here in D.C. and you're in, in you know, Poughkeepsie, one of my favorite cities. Is this going to reach you or not? And if it's sunny outside, will it get there? And if it's foggy, will it get there? And that's a really important question when we're talking about things like, I don't know, ICBMs or uh, you know, what's a Navy doing today? So having the physics reflected in, uh, in the technology helps us understand the performance. And then once we understand performance, we can tie that into what is uh, what is the Navy going to do with it? How can they use it? So this is this is minus the social component. This is literally just how is this thing going to perform? And that's where the physics-based modeling is important. Here's the here's the trickier part. If it if the technology actually existed, you could just go out and test, and then you could build estimates. But the problem is when you're talking about future technologies, you're talking about vapor. You're talking about something that doesn't exist. And so now you have to think not just what is this thing that I think we're going to build or I'm looking at this uh, prototype uh, and trying to imagine how it's going to perform. And then at the same time, think about how does that fit into how the, the services are going to operate with it. So it's a really important component of understanding what we're trying to get after from a research and engineering perspective. That's why we, that's why we talk about it. Um, and I know that the next thing you're going to say is, we don't have that already, um, and I have to look to my uh, artificial intelligence and my CIO and my compute people and say, that just every day the capacity, the compute power of machines and the data we have just gets better and better, and so we can do it better and better. And so those investments now help us think, literally help us think about future technology more clearly um, and so that, yeah, that's, that's where my head is with physics-based models. Systems of systems is a slightly different animal um, because systems and systems, um, also a phrase that has become jargonized over time, in my mind as a, as a person who thinks about cyber, is about dependencies. So uh, I have, so I, so let's go back to New York, uh, you know, so DC to Poughkeepsie. So uh, I am going to uh, shoot my bullet at you. That's fine. Uh, maybe it gets there. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but there's a whole series of things that I'm going to need in order to be able to shoot that bullet. And there's a whole series of things um, that are going to happen 
in tracking that bullet, in watching it, in determining what, you know, battle damage assessment, all of that is all about dependencies and data and trying to understand how that all comes together at this higher level picture after I have, um, you know, shot at you. And obviously there's no violence intended here. Um, but that, but so that's why the system of system stuff is important. In particular, when we talk about things like supply chain or logistics, oh my gosh, the dependency stuff is, uh, is, uh, it, we, we can't get at that fast enough and with, with enough, uh, fidelity, more is better here. And yeah, everyone's got a model. Some people have models, others don't. And one of the things that Cyrus is talking about is we need to, we need to create a place where we can bring this all together, look at it and assess the, the effectiveness of these models, right? And then decide, okay, this is working, this isn't working, this is the strengths and weaknesses of this so that we can say, I have, I have certainty here. I have some degree of certainty about what this is going to look like in the real world because to do it in the real world would be really expensive and also an act of war, so we're not doing that. We talked earlier about wartime versus peacetime and how innovation happens and, and doesn't happen in different, uh, in, you know, how innovation is a lot harder in peacetime. But, of course, there is a war going on today um, in, in, in Ukraine. And, and, you know, folks, have there's been a lot of reporting about sort of drones and, and whatnot. But the, the one thing that has really struck with me was this photo that um, the New York Times took of, like, some Ukrainian bunker somewhere. And they had like all the different screens. There's like, you know, 20 iPads and 10 computers and monitors. And they had on there, I counted Skype, Discord, Teams, um, and like four other communication platforms. And, you know, that I'm pretty sure was not like the doctrinal, like, here's how we're going to commute. From, here's how we're going to communicate from like, uh, you know, X Battalion to like Y Squad um, in, you know, 20. 2015 or, or what have you. So I guess, you know, as we're, as we're having this, this, this conversation about sort of like modeling and, 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 and trying to look over the horizon for technologies that don't exist, like, how do you sort of bake into that, the understanding that like, when um, a war starts, like emergent things will end up happening, um, which are, you know, as you said, you don't want to test out in real time, because then people will have to die. For you to really understand exactly what um, you know, what performs and what doesn't. Uh, so, in your list, you left out Facebook chat, um, but this is uh, it is uh, it is. So, also, we should at some other time have a long conversation about how um, ubiquitous communications really has made um, the modern war fight almost noisier, but also just fascinating for the individual. Uh, warfighter mm. because they have so many of these things available to them. Uh, it's it's uh, it's overwhelming. But thinking forward about how do you how how does how does a how does a a laboratory bound engineer and uh, I mean we're still right somebody up at MIT Lincoln Labs working on quantum whatever um, that poor tortured uh, Schrodinger's cat. Um, how you know how do they start to anticipate what is the one to your question. What is the potential use cases? Um, what else is out there that you think your warfighter is going to divert to if something gets uh, too hard to operate? Um, that is a conversation that I have long argued right, needs to happen earlier in the development process. So this, this, this notion of resilience and adaptability, which is, yes, we've built the machine. 
does the machine is it is it um it can it be utilized in ways that are sort of an easy lift for the user thinking of user interface right um and that's the human factors that's a very important conversation to have there's a stage you know uh, uh in the development and prototyping experimentation process where our folks in research and engineering will take it out to exercise military exercises and try and insert it to see and then and then and then do the long stare why are you doing that why did you do it that way okay wait hold on a second i need to go back and switch these buttons around um ooh those are the wrong colors okay good um the, we we are we do that now i think that the the frequency with which we do so you know could be increased uh because anticipating again down the line what your behavior set is of your operator, particularly under austere conditions, um, you, we 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 need to build in um, ways to study that better. To be fair, one of the ways that we have long talked about this from the software perspective, um, um, and increasingly from the hardware perspective, is uh, open source architecture or interoperability. So plug and play. You know, it's I always call this the Mr. Potato Head option. Right, like you, you've given this base function, and you can kind of move it around. Um, now, now it can fire things. Now it can cut trees down. Building in that modularity stuff makes room for a user to start making choices um, under conditions that we had not anticipated. Uh, that is both good and bad, depending on what your user does. Uh, but that, but but building that into the design and the engineering of the machine is a thing that we already think about. Um, but trying to anticipate what the warfighter is going to do and the conditions under which we're going to meet is um, the best we can do is experiment, 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 and get out there, exercise, exercise, exercise. Just have a look, stare at them, ask how it's going. You know, what would you change about this? Not enough of it happens, yeah. but, you know, we're all, we all have full-time jobs. Um, uh, sort of you alluded to modularity. I think I've brought this paper up in the past. We both have a CNAS affiliation and Richard Danzig's driving in the dark 10 propositions about prediction and national security harps exactly on this point that like you can't know and you really shouldn't pretend that you can. So what can you create that is sort of future proof and can be adopted to different and, you know, what investments can you make today that can like pay off in different technological futures tomorrow? Um, and that sort of thing, I think, is is important, both, um, you know, for um, defense departments as well as any organization, really. Um, uh, Nina, what can we learn from Picasso and Cezanne about military <laughs> innovation and how are their insights um, baked into this document? Oh, man, I hate the Internet sometimes. Um <laughs> Uh, the what, <laughs> long time. This is remember that we should be forced to walk around with the zombie versions of the things we wrote before we started uh, serving the the Department of Defense. Oh come on, it's cool. I wrote, Dude, this is I, cool. Okay, all right. So a long time ago, I, I I started to think about what is the nature of mastery and what is the nature of genius. And I my argument for for the warfighter was this that we often point to. People uh, like Claude Shannon, um, like uh, uh, Vannevar Bush, these are our geniuses and they're amazing and they do great things. Um, and that's important. Uh, they, they, right, they have this, this sort of this amazing idea and, 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 and voila, we have uh, universal machines. We have general purpose machines. Great. Um, but we don't often talk about mastery and mastery is its own innovation mechanism. And what, and the thing I point to when I talk about mastery 
and really what my scientists and engineers are after. Most of my scientists and engineers are grinding it out. Right? They don't, they're not, they just wake up one morning and like E equals MC squared. Most of my scientists and engineers, it is a, it is a long game. It's really hard, and, but they're masters of it. They understand what it is they're working with. And from it, new things can happen. And my reference, my, my use case on this one, or the, the one that the analogy here, sorry, is uh, I think about jazz. Um, and it's because when you listen to a jazz quartet, you listen to any jazz performance, what you're looking at feels Im like improvisation. It feels phenomenal. It feels the first time you've heard the song. It's never been played like the song before. Um, and that's that capacity to adapt. And that comes from mastery. Those people who are in that quartet know their, their music, their, their instrument so well, right? And they're so familiar with how music works that they are freed by virtue of, of knowing it that well. And that's, and that is its own kind of innovation. And from a war fighting perspective, I just, I don't think we spend enough time talking about the way in which mastery of what you do, making sure you have, know exactly what you're working with, that you understand that you can, you can pivot, you understand your scope. And then when you go into something like a joint war fighting campaign, you have enough in the bank to say, now here comes the drummer. Now here comes the vocalist. I'm going to, I'm going to stand in the back here. Um, that kind of rhythm, that is something that takes practice and it takes, it takes, uh, you know, whatever people say that takes mass 10,000 hours. I don't know. I never had patience for it, but, um, but that's, that's the role, right? And Picasso was one kind of painter and Cezanne was entirely another. And one just could, could, uh, could jump from form to form and it was perfection. And the other one spent countless hours putting little tiny points on a thing. And, uh, they were both genius, both, both, both immensely innovative. And I, and I, I, again, when we talk about innovation, we need to think about, we need to think about mastery as often as we think about, um, uh, genius. There, yeah. So there's a, there's a sort of flip side of mastery. So, so there's this book called Flying Camelot. It came out, I think last year, and it's sort of coming back to the, like the machine gun thing. It tells the story of fighter pilots in, uh, in the, in the 20th century and goes into Boyd and basically this, um, this, this challenge that when you get so um, sort of enamored with your practice um, in the fighter pilots case, it was, you know, this, this, mm. this ideal, this like World War One ideal of a dogfight. And you, and you start to see that this is the only like true way of war um, that sort of things end up getting your sort of understanding of like everything else that's going on around you starts to get warped. And when, you know, in the, in the, in the fifties and sixties, when, um, when the, the national defense strategy is like, you know, we need fighter, we need planes to do more things than just bomb. You go on this like giant hissy fit and try to like explode the entire defense department because um, you think that like this is the ultimate manifestation of mankind is like flying at Mach 7 and like shooting other planes out of the <laughs> sky. So, um, you know, as as sort of like, um, you know, this comes back to the the sort of social question of. Of, of change because like people will invest their entire, um, you know, decades of their life, their careers, their identities 
in a specific technology or weapons platform or like operational concept. And once that ends up playing its course, it's, you know, very human to be late to understanding that the thing that you devoted your life to personally is no longer what's going to be needed to win the next war. So, um, I don't know, reflections on that and how to sort of um, think about attack and maybe combat that while at the same time, you know, understanding that like, it's not necessarily every shiny thing over the uh, over the mm. horizon, which is going to make whatever today's um, today's masters um, uh, irrelevant. <laughs> because sometimes they're right. It's no, it's, it is, but it's worse too because it, um, so you have the the practitioner has a way of understanding what success looks like, and because they're a practitioner. That's where they're going, right? They, this is how we, it's worked before. It must work again. And what makes it harder still, not to lean into your question even further, uh, what makes it harder still is you have, um, we have, uh, we have budgetary dollars and programs and uh, legacy items uh, for which, um, you know, we, we have to honor those, those programs. And then we have uncertainty about what the battlefield's going to look like. And so it's hard, even harder still. To pivot to, or you know, as one would say, right, have a paradigm shift in how we do uh, air power, how we do cyber, how we do um, uh, the Marine Corps at anything amphib operations. Um, so, how do you how do you ensure that we can adapt to what's coming, um, even though we don't quite know what it is? <laughs> Uh, and then, how do we you know how do we make sure the practices follow, even though all your advocates are the people who have been most successful at uh, at making their technology practices the ones that we pay for, the ones that we feature, the how we think about how to do war. Really hard. And how do we do it in peacetime? Again, wartime, that stuff will shake out real fast. Uh, but peacetime, how do we do it in a way where we're, we're looking at it? And I would say that, um, so one, just as an adaptive force, and I'm just going to sort of speak for my own home team here, which is that the United States really is, is good at this. And I think in part because we're constantly fighting each other uh, competitively to, for, for budget dollars or for programs or whatever. I would say it's a little easier now, I'm, but this is, I'm going to be made to answer this question. Wait, wait. I'm going to be, I'm going to be made to suffer this. Oh, go ahead. Okay. No, so, sorry, Nina, let's stay on that. So adaptive force, um, I adaptive think this force. is, this is, this is something that's worth, you know, the forces fighting with each other. I think this is something which is staying on because like on the one hand, your, your, um, uh, your, um, uh, your document talks about like, oh man, we really need to be joint. But like, there's, there must be a tension there between like getting the different forces to compete with each other and really having them play nicely because there's that's something right. good about the competition, right? Because as you alluded to, Nina, like there's something there's something that's really like generative and useful about uh, about the competition. I absolutely fundamentally think that all the essence, all the science and technology enterprises within the Department of Defense should always be moving out based on the scope of the problem they they've been asked to answer. Right. If you're looking at the combatant commands, or if you're looking at how the Pentagon does business, I think. I think I think moving out independently, the heterogeneous competition is the healthiest possible thing for when you're trying to understand which way should these technologies go, what is the best of breed. 
all day long would, would never recommend the unification um, of, of the different technological streams. They are all facing different challenge sets. And for those reasons, um, those solution sets, even if they don't get picked up, they're, they are part of this bigger picture of refining and understanding what's important for the building. Jointness, I think, I think and, and, and this is my wander off as, as sort of professional nerd, Dr. Nina Collars, is to what is, what, is, what is the thing we're trying to achieve with jointness? And because jointness doesn't mean we have to merge all the services together. That is, that is not, right? that, there's a reason we don't do that. Um, and it's not just because they would fight back, right? Um, it is because there's something we're trying to achieve with jointness. And what we're trying to achieve with jointness is making sure that if you have a conflict, all of your, uh, all of your different domains uh, of fight are being brought to bear. If I'm being asked to focus on every domain uh, simultaneously, that's a terrible idea. I won't ever specialize in the technology that I need to meet uh, subsea stuff or air stuff or space stuff. They have to keep moving out. The problem for Nina with jointness is I need them to understand how it's coming along. How is that fight being tailored and stitched together? Uh, the decision processes that need to accompany that and to make sure that our comms capability, our data capabilities are interoperable in a way uh, that we can effectively fight. That's what's important to me, right? So it's not that, you know, jointness as in a, um, we need to merge all of our offices together. This is a terrible idea. Centralization is a terrible idea. The, the point is we want to make sure that when we come out on the other side of whatever technological change we're trying to get to, um, that they can work together, that they can, that they can stitch together in a way that's truly um, representative of what's possible. We, you know, we, it's not like we haven't done it before, right? The Navy and the Air Force have done the thing. We've done these things. The, uh, you know, the, the Second World War, these are tremendous examples of how we figured it out. How do we combine air with sea? How do we combine undersea with air? You know, this is a thing that we do. We just need to make sure that as we step through modernization into these new technology areas, that that's built in there. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, we'll all end up on uh, on uh, Facebook chat to try and communicate with each other. It's not a secure platform. I don't care what they say. Yeah, but maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know. That's the thing, right? <laughs> Anyways, uh, sorry. Uh, Cyrus, you wanted to take on any of that? No, uh, I mean, I think uh, okay. the best... The best advice, or not the best advice, actually the most alarming advice I got when I was first stepping into the Pentagon was very pessimistic from from old hats in um, like net assessment in that place, saying the Pentagon is all about people wanting to build and preserve their castles and all that sort of stuff. And I was pretty scared because my job would be to go in and say, hey, I want to look at all of your data and I want to put it all together and we're going to make you more transparent and accountable. Um, that sounds like I'd be in you know, front of a firing squad. Um, but um, what, what I was really surprised to find is you know, R&E, we have these 14 critical technology areas. And, and our first prototype from data analytics was to get a whole of DOD view on how everybody is investing in critical technology areas historically and planning for the future. 
Um, and there were different strategy documents that appeared from different parts of the department. The Army has its own modernization priorities, the Air Force its own. Um, and so from a systems perspective, I wanted to understand how do, how do we, how does our boss, the chief technology officer, interact with the science and technology executives of the uh, military uh, departments? Um, and then the acquisition executives to make sure that their capability portfolios um, are also ready to receive these critical technologies and aligned. Um, surprisingly, um, though there are those, I think, inter-force or just inter-organizational rivalries, you know, everyone wanting to preserve their projects, preserve their workforce, um, make sure that their teams are elevated in some way, everyone was very quick to realize the opportunity there of being able to see what other organizations are doing and how we don't need to be duplicative in efforts, in investments. Um, and then also that working together in a common environment or in common processes like the Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve, you know, focusing on joint force um, investment, prototyping and experimentation um, would actually yield probably more positive results and ones that could even be adapted in near-term situations or bringing things to the field quickly, like what um, the acquisition and sustainment um, organization has done with taking projects quickly experimented with in this experimentation program that's existed for just over a year and bringing them to the field today. So we've been teasing this for long enough. We should probably just get to it. I'm going to read this off like it's a Seder. Um, we, got the four, we got 14 uh, technology areas. They're bucketed into three categories. Biotechnology, quantum science. No, I'm kidding. Um, okay, so seed areas of emerging tech opportunity. We have biotech, quantum science, um, future G, which I guess is like 5G, 6G, what have you, advanced materials. Then we have effective adoption areas, trusted AI and autonomy, integrated network systems of systems, microelectronics, space technology, renewable energy and storage, advanced computing and hardware, human machine interfaces, and then uh, defense specific areas, directed energy, hypersonics, and uh, last but not least, integrated sensing and cyber. Um, what should we say? I don't know. What, what do you guys want to talk about? Like the list as a concept, the list as buckets, like what's the, who got cut? Like what's number 15? Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, t t take it where you will. Like what, 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 what is this? <laughs> Sorry. I just think what you're, it's a, it's a funny question. What's number 15? Uh, it had never occurred to me before. Now I'm going to be haunted by this question and I'll have to go back and look. Um, no, because so, Nina, number fifteen is going to win World War Three. I mean, that's, that's like somewhere, and that's not what I'm trying to suggest at all. Oh, um, so critical technology. I, I love this. I love this quote. Like uh, your 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 boss Heidi Shu said, uh, I think two years ago. I really want to neck down this list, but it just kept growing. <laughs> and to your earlier point, man, the NSC had a huge list. We have a so. Can I just just a quick riff? The um, Americans more broadly. This is not a. This is not just a DODism. This is a. This is a United Statesism. We really love our technology lists. Um, you would be hard pressed to find a science and technology strategy anywhere in the United States, whether it's private sector, or whatever, that doesn't have a list, right? That there's this really sort of this 
this beautiful certainty that arises. There's a calmness. It's like, well, at least we have a list um, of technologies. And, uh, and I, they, so that, but these lists, lists serve a purpose in, um, in helping sort of, especially in big organizations, okay, uh, can I put my project in one of these buckets or not? Uh, do I need to start thinking about a new project? Great. Uh, and lists are useful from that perspective. But the, you know, the thing that enables, that list enables some people to sort of say, okay, I should move forward with these investments can also be the list that, that binds you because, wait, well, hold on a second. Um, why is my widget not on this list? Um, and that is, my, that is my personal kind of like, oh, I get a little kind of a gut pain every time I think about technology lists. Um, we need to have them. Um, but they they can bind you in ways that you don't like. And one of the one of the moves um, that we that we <laughs> went through when we we're talking about well should should there be a list? Do we do we generate a new list? Is the the list that 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 we turned out for the critical technologies uh, in um, Honorable Shoes um, strategic vision in February of last year? You know is that sufficient? Um, and and there's one and I just didn't I didn't want to go there with generating a new list because I. I think there are so many policy and process changes and so many adjustments we need to make it just about how we think about where technology comes from. And that, in my part, is the favorite part about the CTA list. It's not so much the CTA list itself. It's the buckets, which is how do I, where, who am I looking to uh, to work on this problem for me? And that, was, that became, that became um, where I was like, that, that for me was the, was the quiet genius in the 14 CTAs was, okay, so we'll have, you know, to, CTAs will, will come, it'll come into vogue, some of them mature over time, they'll move from bucket to bucket, I would imagine, um, as, we, as we refine their capabilities. But what's interesting is, okay, we said there are things that industry does far better, faster, and more, and in much better ways than we do. The Department of Defense is the margin of dollar in most technology investments, uh, so let's see where industry is headed. Um, that Understanding that that's a, that's a that's a disposition that the that the DoD should should adopt wholly and think about it. and when you look at like where's the the center mass of all these it's in the effective adoption areas so okay good right okay Department of Defense you can't just make your own widgets anymore go get out there and look um, and the same thing with the sort of the the emerging spaces right biotech quantum if you've been watching the Biden administration biotech is an increasing part of the conversation for them. Because they see this not just as a you know as a defense element, right? This is a global thing, and so um, the, in my mind, that's like okay, university research, STEM talent, get at it, right? We need more people and more thinking in this space because we don't know what it's what's going. And then we get down to this defense specific stuff. Okay, I got it. This is what I need to be working on inside the shop. We can't talk about it. We don't want to you know that's the sort of super sneaky classified secret squirrel stuff. Great. Um, but at least it helps us. The buckets for me do more work uh, than any particular one item on this. And I probably just broke Cyrus's heart here because I'm sure he has one that's his favorite. Do you have a favorite one? <laughs> no, no, I do not. I, I love all the all fourteen. <laughs> equally. In, in, oh come yeah. on, we gotta play. We gotta play um, uh, uh, the... you know, overrated, underrated. I don't know. Human machine interfaces. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really love trusted AI and autonomy. Um, just just for helping us out as an organization and making my job easier, hopefully, or more interesting. Um, but I love them all equally. 
Um, yeah, I, I we're not allowed to pick. We're not allowed to pick winners. Don't 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 get me okay. fired, Jordan. <laughs> All right, fine. So so you know this 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 sort of bucket concept is interesting, and I think is better than that. You know, no offense, whoever made the White House one, but like the 14 pages with like lots of like sub bullets of basically like every discipline under everything. It's like, great, you guys did your homework. Like, cool. Um, But, um, uh, you know, this idea of defense specific areas like directed energy, no one's no one. If you're not going to I think the point is like if you're not going to make that, no one is like there's no like a hypersonic thing is not doesn't necessarily have all that much commercial um, uh, value uh, unless you're selling to the Department of Defense to blow stuff up within like, you know, three minutes halfway across the world. Um, and then, you know, we, for human interface machines, like you got Neuralink doing its thing. There are a number of startups in that space. And then, you know, even in the in the sort of seat and, you know, obviously with uh, trusted AI and autonomy, like the um, uh, I, I don't I'm not sure the the uh, the, the Defense Department is going to be writing, you know, um, $30 billion checks to Anthropic anytime soon to like make its new model. But anyways, who knows? We'll see. Um, and then we have this, this sort of seed areas of emerging opportunity with, with biotech and quantum science where, you know, we're, we're, um, uh, we're like probably, I think it's, it's like a technological maturity as well as like a event horizon thing that puts it in that bucket. Like what's the, um, uh, um, you know, what, what, wh- where do you draw the line between those two? Because I think that's the sort of more, um, uh, um, uh, a more nuanced one, maybe. For me, when I look at those, um, specifically when I look at quantum science and biotech, what I'm seeing is, um, what I'm seeing is risk. So massive uncertainty. So about what this means in, in the human space. So biotech is a big deal because what can we do with both the natural bodies and the natural world? And that horizon's opening up. And we know if and, and all and my my um, father's side of the family are, are uh, long generational farmers. And they know when you start messing around with nature, nature has something to say to you about that. Um, and so when we start when we start digging in at this biotech level, uh, the dependencies, the implications, we we just don't know. So that for me is like, OK. We're heading like the world's steaming toward it, uh, but we need to start thinking about the policy. We need guardrails, a, a diffusion of the ideas. So there's just so much uncertainty there. We just don't know. And so keep an eye on this and watch these bloom. Same thing for quantum from a cyber perspective, from encryption's perspective. You know, freaks me out uh, that that you know privacy may may go by the wayside until, unless we start thinking about how we're going to to deal with the massive infrastructure that we have grown organically over the last seven decades, um, the, the internet, um, and what, what's going to happen there. And so th- those for me are like, okay, this is a big deal, but we don't know. We just don't know um, how, to, how to marshal, how to think about it. The promise and peril is really, for me, in that, in that space. I think Future G is just a build out of the notion, again, um, the internet has been fundamentally has, has given us oceans of data and has moved oceans of data globally in a way that we will <laughs> we're just trying to figure it out, uh, just trying to figure out what's next and, and how to how to avoid the pitfalls and, and how to make human life better. Yeah. So those are those. Are, that's why that's that bucket does a lot of work for me. I just whew, 
a lot of a lot of infrastructure underneath all of those infrastructure yeah um maybe close with some sort of reading recommendations so like coming back to these um uh you know i'm, I'm glad cyrus you listened to the past uh, china talk episodes i think you know as a uh a, someone with uh, humanities degrees who pretends like he knows something about technology um the um the uh the the thing which i keep trying to think about and work my way through with ai and whatever is going to the whatever fallout is going to come out is like how and how fast and how well will organizations uh you know adopt and adapt to the new capabilities that are put in front of their um uh you know put on their plates and you know when you look at um when you look at the social history of the um uh, of the machine gun like you you and and you you start to think about how uh, you know there are capabilities which like people really resist or don't understand or take a long time to sort of like conceptualize exactly how they can be um, applied. So maybe are there other books um, like that or sort of men, machines in modern times that kind of look at technological change and, you know, the, the sort of social aspect or organizational aspect of, of adopting to whatever is next that we can, you know, from a historical perspective that we, we can maybe look at for other um, uh, context points as we start to um, uh, try to think about, you know, these, these, these 14, you know, plus, uh, you know, Mr. 15 out there um, and how um, we may all have to um, uh, uh, change in order to, uh, to succeed in, in whatever brave new world is coming down the pipeline. A foundational book for me that um, that I think says a lot about military power and about how we do technological change um, is going to be uh, William H. McNeil's The Pursuit of Power, um, which goes at military technological development um, and walks a little bit into this, um, what I think this machine is for and what it really ended up being for and the yeah. bets we place on some stuff and not others. I would say that um, for foundational, if you're going to get super nerdy about like the way the foundations of technology, you know, how data moves and how compute is helping, um, um, Gleek's book, Faster, is unbelievable, unbelievable, and, um, and really helps you get down to that granular level of these are the, these are the tiny weirdly human decisions we make and here's the effects of it. And I think so uh, all of Gleek's work is amazing. And then just a little vote for the social end of things. Um, if you haven't been reading Diego Gambetta, either Codes of the Underworld or Streetwise, um, it really speaks to how humans are dealing in, uh, with conflict and how the, how they develop human systems to deal with the with the machinic worlds they're in. And just to be clear, Streetwise is about how uh, cab drivers know who to pick up on dark and rainy nights where their lives are in threat. And Codes of the Underworld is the ways in which um, prisoners uh, inside prisons um, uh, engage in sort of different kinds of body markings or different kinds of signaling in order to deal with the fact that they are in a, in a heavily hostile environment. I think if you if you if you take a little bit from the hyper technical and and but remember that the socials there you're going to have a much better time thinking about how innovation works and I think 
if you ignore either, you're in big trouble. Yeah, I think I, my, my parents had a James Glick book in their house and I remember it like scared me for some reason. It was like the chaos one. And so I didn't pick it up until I think it was last year. And then I'm like, oh my God, this guy is, this guy is, this guy is it. Like uh, I did the Newton one. I did the information did the theory information one. I mean, one. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Faster. No, it's like, faster. Like... Faster's phenomenal. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't pay for that kind of knowledge. The, when I found out that what we understand to be time, uh, I think it's so, I'm going to, I'm going to get the year wrong. It's probably like 1954 or 59. When we redefine what constitutes a second, uh, blew my mind blew blew my mind right it used to be seconds used to be a measure of relative to uh, a rotation around the sun um but it turns out that the universe is changing over time and therefore what constitutes a portion of the day <laughs> it's changing and and the, and your computer scientists are like we can't deal with it. it's not going to work because we work in a world of nanoseconds now so we have to pin it to something else and so we fundamentally redefine what a second is Oh my gosh, blew my mind and everything that follows from it. Everything. Crazy. Crazy. But crazy. And the the, the, the social one is is really fun because like it's um uh uh it I I have not read those books, but I assume it gets into this idea of like just kind of like emergent behaviors and yes. like people adapting at the ground yes. level to like whatever systems they're at. And it's yes. you know, yeah, the and they're it's the same thing that's happening in Bakhmut today, but in a, um, uh, you know, you can study it in a slightly less, uh, you know, fraught way. And, and you can come to understand human responses uh, because I think when you, when you put the big cap of war on top of things or conflict or death, um, which by the way is also relevant to the cab driver or the, or the prisoner, you, uh, you can too quickly get uh, distracted by, uh, you know, decision trees and c2 structures and whatever um you know whether or not this x-band radio is working but really getting down to the what is this person going to do about this because they have a thing they're trying to do and they're in an environment that is presenting them with all kinds of challenges uh, that's they're changing it's fantastic work uh diego gambetta can't say it enough Cyrus, Nina, this was so much more fun than I was expecting. Um, thank you. Look, <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, we owe it all to our boss, Heidi Shu, who hires extraordinary people. And we, uh, uh, I can't say enough, the people inside R&E are just fascinating and diverse and interesting and thoughtful. Uh, it just doesn't always look like it on the outside. We close every episode with a song. Um, do you have anything that comes to mind uh given our past uh i don't know hour and a half of chatting about dod and technology i don't know my 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 dissertation theme song was uh under pressure that's the queen and david bowie song <laughs> under pressure is my favorite <laughs> just just putting that out there cyrus <laughs> cyrus is rolling his eyes over there cyrus, uh, yeah. that's, great. Yeah. that's great that's great. Every good 2000s movie begins or closes. I know. I know. Uh, I don't know. So let me think. So no, what else? What else? Room. What do you think? What should we, what's, what's our closing song? about when you think about clean data in the defense department, what's the first song that comes to mind? Uh, I, I think just pots and pans falling. 